You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 287. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, Nice day today, getting hot out there. Uh, Listen, there was the gold rush. There was the race to monetize the internet. There was mobile. There was crypto. What are you going into these days to make some money? Well, have you heard of the equity business? No, I don't mean stocks. <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not stocks. I mean DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. How many of you have friends and neighbors, and dare I say coworkers, who are really revved up to go into this new field? There's just so much money to be made in DEI at least for now, and all you have to do is spread the gospel and browbeat your industry into delicious compliance. Now, if you've been living in the U.S. for the last few years, you've run into this, I'm sure, but there's another kind of analog on the corporate level that you might not have heard it. I'd call it an analogy. We'll have to hash this out. It's another three-letter term, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. If you haven't heard the term, Uh, You might continue not to hear it because BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said he no longer uses the term ESG, which is uh, uh, um, uh, due to the growing political backlash against this particular concept in investing. So (laughs) what is ESG? Well, our next guest has done a lot of research in this area. Peter C. Earle is an economist who joined AIER in 2018. Prior to that, he has spent over 20 years as a trader and analyst at a number of securities firms and hedge funds in the New York metropolitan area. His research focuses on financial markets, monetary policy, and problems in economic measurement. Let's bring up another fascinating conversation. Peter C. Earle, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, I am very excited to talk to you uh, in person. Well, not in person, but live, because uh, I, I really wanted to hear your ESG talk at Porkfest, and I heard it last year. And so I, I just want to introduce my audience to this a little bit, uh, because you know some people might not know we've been talking about ChatGPT a lot for the last uh, a few <laughs> few months. So yeah. I just want to start by asking, like, what is ESG, um, and 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 is it a bad thing? You know, is it, was it meant to be a good thing? What, what are some of the perceptions around it? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the, that's the best place to start. So, so ESG uh, describes a framework um, whereby businesses should take into account, not just shareholders and profit, but also stakeholders. And uh, specifically in this case, um, stakeholders, stakeholders with respect to environmental, social and governance objectives. Um, the, uh, the idea is that uh, companies owe an obligation to any entity, any interest group, um, which could argue they're affected by it. Now, I'm not going to get into this just yet, but you can many, many viewers who hear that will say, well, boy, that's a pretty slippery slope. I mean, can you imagine any individual or group on, on, on Earth today arguing that they're not affected by, say, Amazon.com or something? But anyway, ESG, that portion of it refers to companies having to meet certain environmental, social or governance um, uh, frameworks, uh, having to, to meet certain criteria with respect to that. And the social governance portion is overwhelmingly informed by DEI, which is another, um, uh, you know, sort of an abbreviation we hear a lot today, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now, 
you know, the question is, is it a bad thing? And the answer is that for, for at least a century, um, the explicit person, purpose of corporations um, was exclusively to serve shareholders, equity owners of the firm. And uh, in 1919, there's a landmark court case called Dodge versus Ford Motor Company, um, which sort of enshrined the ruling that Henry Ford had an obligation to run his firm in the best interest of shareholders and shareholders alone. And um, the ways in which the primacy of shareholders upheld is straightforward. Managers and executives basically have to use the resources of the firm to maximize profits and guard the interests of shareholders. Um, yet since the 60s, came around, and in particular about 1963, there's been a new wave of thought, and that's of stakeholder governance. And basically, as I said, the idea of a stakeholder is that any individual, any group or entity can argue that the that the, that the company owes it um, some obligations merely by virtue of having an effect on it. Now, this could be anything from pretty logical stakeholders like suppliers or vendors uh, to some kind of strange ones. I mean, local communities are not that strange. The environment is kind of strange, trees, you know, things like that. Any other, um, uh, basically any party which can either argue or have argued on its behalf that it has a relationship or is impacted by a firm as a stakeholder. And uh, that leads us to some kind of unusual places which we're seeing um, more recently. So who determines who is a stakeholder and in what ratio of power should they have? Like if, if I say, oh, I'm a supplier like, or, or I'm, a, I'm a customer here. I, I really need these guys to do a good job. So I, I should be a stakeholder. And then someone else, oh, these people are operating in my town and it's affecting my lifestyle. I'm a stakeholder. Like who adjudicates how much power person A has versus via person B? Yeah, exactly. How, how does the pecking order go, right? I mean, I mean, what... What is actually happening behind the scenes in many cases is that the government, um, governments, or, or, or in some cases, uh, um, uh, shareholders who have a disproportionate influence on the company itself will exert uh, uh, on behalf of them. For example, um, some large shareholders, uh, institutional shareholders like mutual funds or something like that, may determine that you know it's really important um, to, uh, to 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 be custodians of the local environment. And so they may they may find themselves uh, under pressure or themselves voluntarily put pressure on a firm to uh, change their policies with respect to pollution or something like that. That's not very pernicious, uh, but there are some forms of stakeholdership that are actually very pernicious, and they're you know they're being informed right now by governments, uh, by activist groups, you know, all of whom are finding ways to sort of exert their uh, their will on companies, which subvert the the the, the rights and the obligations of the firm. To its shareholders. Um, so you use the word pernicious. Can you give some examples that are particularly uh, illustrative of what's going on? Sure. I mean, uh, um, in some cases, you have, um, for example, in terms of diversity and, um, and, 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 uh, and inclusion, in some cases, you have um, dictates uh, coming down that say that firms should choose people to be on their boards of directors or choose uh, people in the C-suite. CEOs, uh, chief operating officers, that sort of thing, um, who are who represent diverse interests, either say racially or whatever, but they may not be qualified, and I mean uh, that's both bad for shareholders and it's really bad for those people too. I mean, some of those people are being set up to fail. Um, in those cases, I don't think it's fair to anyone. But I mean, that subverts the uh, the, the the purpose of the company of the corporation to guard its shareholders' interests and make a profit. 
um, because you want the most qualified people, regardless of what those people's um, say, you know, uh, ethnic or, or gender or whatever background might be. So I mean, that's, that's that's one thing. And I mean, certainly you can imagine ways in which environmental dictates and governance and, uh, and other social, uh, you know, uh, uh, requirements can also subvert uh, what, what, what's best for shareholders in the in uh, in terms of what the uh, management is or, or should be doing. So this kind of reminds me, if I were to go back into this podcast history, I, I just want to go back to episode 108. And, you know, this this whole idea of ESG and, and stakeholder capitalism, as you said, goes back many, many, many decades. But like sure. ba- back in 108, this was one of the last episodes before COVID, because I remember COVID was episode 110, and that was a pretty uh, memorable episode. Um, so this must have been like February of, uh, of 2020. And, and we were talking about these proposals by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who wanted to actually pack corporate boards. They wanted to put uh, yeah. members on corporate boards that protect interests other than shareholders. So I don't know what you could do to comment on that proposal other than why is this coming about now? Why was this coming about in, let's say, 2019, 2020? And, you know, what, what, what accounts for this timing? So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. So first, I would start by saying that on one hand, I think the emergence of ESG, uh, this is a personal view. In one sense, it represents a great development and achievement for those of us who espouse free market and pro-business philosophies. I would argue that by pushing ESG, the left, and in particular, the collectivist left, the far left, is simultaneously um, acknowledging the high productivity and welfare enhancing component of business, while simultaneously, they're essentially conceding uh, that governments can't do anything right. They're inherently incompetent. They're costly, all that sort of thing. So in that way, I think we can take a, uh, maybe not, not maybe not a plug, but we can give ourselves a golf clap, right? Um, but a different way of looking at it is, is, is abject hypocrisy. You know, many, probably most of the individuals and groups who are trying to pile new responsibilities onto private capital are in the same breath promoting the idea that there are these huge swaths of, of public life that should be relegated to state control and the provision of, of goods via state imprimatur. So there's there's a few ways. You asked how we got, got here. I mean, there's a few ways we got here. I think one is that we've permitted um, governments to encroach on private property over decades and not really pushed back on it. Um, we also, I always come back to this because I'm an economist. We live in a, in a nation where a kid is more likely to take square dancing lessons than have basic economics by the time they reach 12th grade. And um, oh, yeah, we did square dancing. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, we did the parachute thing. That was actually. <laughs> I would rather have done that than uh, economics. But looking back now, it might have been better for me if I had taken economics much earlier. Um, yeah, I think we had and, one and, class. By the way, yeah, and, and by the That's... way, when kids do take economics in, in, in usually in college, if they're, um, they usually take a, a pretty lousy form of economics that puts them off. Uh, there are better ways to teach economics, but that's a whole other conversation we can have. Um, there's another phenomenon, which is, you know, we really, the West got so rich so quickly and markets are such a great generator of prosperity. You know, we, it's very easy to forget where you came from even one or two generations ago. Hmm. Um, let me just add two more real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah another another is, um, this is, a, this is another personal view. Um, I think that the incredible levels of real demonstrable violence and destruction, which Americans saw in the summer of 2020, led to a lot of fear that wasn't there previously. I think, I think you know, even though it had to do with the killing of George Floyd, I think seeing cities actually burning 
and hearing actual gunfire on the streets of major cities in the U.S. was really ex existential to people, and in particular to people in uh, positions of responsibility, CEOs and corporate board members, and the willingness to, of the media to whitewash a lot of what was happening. Um, you remember the whole mostly peaceful nonsense played a role in yeah. companies under. Yeah, I think that played a role in companies not going under to collectivist put in pressure on firms. And then, uh, as you know, because I wrote an article about it, the second of those has to do with the role of monetary policy in making these distractions for corporations financially plausible. If you had said, um, if, if a lot of this pressure had come onto boards and corporate executives, whether it's directly from the government or through firms like Black, uh, the BlackRock um, in the uh, in the 1980s, when interest rates were six to eight percent or whatever, you know, they would have been laughed out of the room because it's just too expensive. You would say, OK, we can do this or this, but not this and this. And I think in the uh, zero interest rate policy we've had for many years, and I wrote an article about this, I think a lot of these things became plausible. But the rise in interest rates, I think, is going to force a reckoning and uh, sort of a uh, um, uh, sort of a, make a lot of CEOs sort of harken back to the days of being focused on the business of business alone. So that's a lot of talk, but I think those all account for the um, sort of the, uh, the the sort of meteoric rise of ESG in the last three or four years, and also to some extent what will reverse it. Yeah, I I think one of the things that really caught me off guard in in the middle of 2020 was yep. you know, and I kind of looked back at my my writings and stuff at the time, and it was like, well. I, I was living in New York. I didn't, um, I didn't feel any particular fear at the time. But then it was like when my employer started having these um, mandatory Zoom meetings telling us that, like, you know, this is a good thing and we have to support it. And, you know, you can't mention any of the downsides to what is going on <laughs> in our community. Yeah. Um, yep. I asked some questions that were conveniently uh, ignored and, and thrown out by management. And this it was clear this was happening throughout the tech industry. Every company could possibly work for, and it was that sure. you know a little bit of crime in my city, not good, but like you know I I understand that. But when when all these companies were like, you have to celebrate this, I was like, oh, that was a that was a real shock. Yeah, I lived in New York City for a while too, and it was nothing like that back then. In fact, the the period of time when I lived in Manhattan were some of the some of the best years that New York has had in you know fifty or sixty years. So uh, I lived there there at a very different time that's probably unrecognizable now. Wait, wait, when did you live there? Late nineties. Okay, okay. So I yeah. I came kind of late to the party because I was uh, I was there from two thousand six to twenty twenty one. Wow, much longer I, than I was. There. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I feel like those first, you know, five to ten years were were pretty good. Uh, yeah. Those, uh, you know, New York City, 2010, 2013, um, You know, I could live with. You know, crime was low. It wasn't when it happened. It wasn't celebrated. Um, I felt like right. services kept on getting better and better. New neighborhoods were opening up. You know, continually. And then, sometime in the middle of the de Blasio administration, like yeah. all that stopped happening. Yep, absolutely. Um, there was a little bit of momentum going into like 2015, 2016, but uh, <laughs> after that, not so much. Um, but anyway, getting back to, uh, getting back to ESG, yep. uh, I, I, I feel like you just answered this question that I have here, but I, I, I think it's an important question to ask. So maybe we can, maybe we can go back because 
I'll just write what I, what I have here. I, I think a lot of people, including myself, have been caught off guard with some of the corporate actions recently, whether it was from my company or other companies. It's like they're very committed to what they're doing, and it seems like they don't care about customers or you know who's willing to pay for their products. So it seems right. like the profit motive should have kept some of this, these tendencies in check. And like you could say, well, maybe it's the interest rates, maybe it's some other things, but it seems like something has gone wrong, at least in, in how, how can I just like my mental model of the business world, because it just does not fit with what has actually happened. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, so, I mean, some, some of what I said previously has to do with it. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've, 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 we've seen the growth of government to a point where it really sort of seeps into everything. So, I mean, if, if, if in 1955, uh, you know, the government had told some firms or a firm, you know, what to do in terms of its hiring policies, there would have been a backlash, but now, you know, it all, after a while, everything sort of becomes part of the background and it looks pretty appropriate, or at least it doesn't really cause any sort of uh, surprise. And again, like I said, you know, we've had this 10, you know, I think 15 of the last 21 years or something like that, we have interest rates at between zero and 1%. And those are very heady times. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, we had these massively expansionary monetary and fiscal programs. And so all of that really changes the calculus of decision making in large firms. And you can get away, away with a lot of nonsense when money is basically mm. free. But, you know, now we've got um, not so much now, but you know, by last summer, we had inflation at four decade highs is battering the cost of firms, uh, battering the cost of doing business. Um, right now, we have consumers and they're they're just now. Uh, starting to, uh, you know, as, as a whole, um, I don't like to talk about aggregate uh, consumption because I'm not a Keynesian, but I, we, what we do know is that the average consumer has basically worked through uh, their pandemic stimulus payments. And, um, you know, more and more with inflation, even now and with uh, lower growth, um, consumers are cutting back on expenditures. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we're starting to see also, you know, consumers, uh, their voice is getting louder. Um, the whole debacle at Bud Light, um, Disney releasing movie bomb after movie bomb. People are really upset about this new Indiana Jones movie, you know, things like that. So I think um, I think things are coming together now that represent the pushback. But a lot of it started with monetary policy, with fiscal policy, leading up to and especially during the early stage of the pandemic. So another, I've been thinking about what you said in my mind a little bit. It almost seems like the government says, okay, you know, you can act on behalf of shareholders a certain percent, let's say it's 90%, you know, and then 10% you have to, you know, um, siphon off to these other kind of ill-defined interests, the interests of stakeholders, which just end up being everybody, you know, right. Right. So, which, which just end up being the government. So I, I'm almost trying to push it to the extreme. Like, what if that 10% goes to 100%? You have to do 100% what we want. Isn't that communism, fascism? You know, so so yeah, I'm just I mean, like, OK, but, you know, we only need a little bit of a little bit. Of, I don't know how to if I'm describing it correctly. But yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, you, you're now tell me if I'm wrong. you're asking if there is is there an equilibrium point where firms can make just enough profit that everything else that they do is basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, wokeism and it's shareholder support rather than making a profit or whatever. You know, is that number guess- like. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of asking that. I'm also asking, uh, you know, are they injecting a tiny bit of like 
you know, poison in my sandwich, but like you won't notice it. It won't affect you, but they're still injecting it in there. Uh, kind yeah, of. I mean, what's, what's, what's amazing is that, I mean, I mean, one of the things that makes people really realize the power of markets and prices is that, you know, if you look at the size of, of uh, just look at the, the massive raft of regulation that's been levied on firms over the last, say, 100 years, private enterprise is still mightily lifting people out of poverty. It's still increasing our longevity. It's still increasing the, uh, you know, the, the, the quality and the number of goods and services that are available to us every year. And that's with chains on them. I mean, markets are markets and firms are more constricted than they've ever been. Every year, it, the amount goes up, and yet they still have that power. And when, usually, when I get when I say that to a student, or when I say that to somebody who, you know, sort of seems to realize um, uh, that dynamic, I say, now imagine what it would be like if we got rid of a quarter or a half of those regulations. I guess my point is, um, I think the government realizes. And by the way, this goes with what I said in the beginning. It sort of can, it, the, the whole um, rise of ESG sort of concedes um, their. Uh, the, the the left, especially the far left's um, uh, recognition of the power of markets. I think um, they know that you can you can squeeze a lot out of firms um, before you kill the golden goose. I think that's what they're saying. I think they can get a lot out, but the question is why should they? I mean, especially because my you know my my firm or my investments are my private property, and I have a legal I'm supposed to have you know a legal. Um, claim on on earnings or whatever uh you know I, i'm not a, i'm not a partner i'm not a I, i'm not a bondholder i'm a shareholder i'm an owner and my and the, the role of or the 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 extent to which my ownership um is spelled out is identified in the differences between corporate you know or rather common uh, shareholders and preferred shareholders and all that but th those corporate managers are supposed to be charged with the duty of serving me the shareholder and um I think um, I think eventually we're going to get one of these cases that's going to go to the Supreme Court or something, um, or you know, I, I, I maintain a degree of optimism because I think there's only so long this can last for, and there's a few scenarios in which I see it ending. Um, most of them involve a whimper, not a bang. I don't think there's going to be some uh, Norma Ray type. Uh, that's probably a reference most people won't get. Yeah. Some shareholder or some CEO is going to stand up and say, "I refuse," you know, to do this or that. But I do see some ways in which it comes to an end. One is pretty quickly. The other takes a lot longer and does more damage. But both of them are somewhat insidious and would mean the end of ESG over some time period. Yeah. So I I want to talk about that optimism uh, for a little bit, but I want to come back to to something else because you said that. You know, sometimes this is pushed by the large shareholders in these yeah. companies themselves, which, I mean, I suppose if they're a 100% shareholder, that's their right. But, you know, it's, right, sure. it's, certainly, yeah. in the, it's certainly in the, at the expense of, of the other shareholders there. But that's, that's their money. Like, you know, if, if I'm a big company, if I'm a big investment firm and I own 30% of this other company, why would I be pushing this company to do things that are not in my interest as a shareholder? What's the... What's the motive here? Well, I mean, there, 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 there are two, two possible explanations for that. One is that, you know, a large shareholder may be essentially an activist and may have already either made a lot of money or may just want to push until they see pushback. Some certainly one things we may we, one of the things we may see is that there are some um, ESG funds or there's some shareholders who, you know, don't realize how much, you know, can be squeezed out, how much blood can be squeezed from the rock until they actually squeeze it and get pushed back. Um, you know, as you said, if it's I mean, ultimately, 
um, if some firm decides to spend all of its, you know, uh, profits or devote all of its efforts towards uh, um, uh, causes which are not really related to doing business or to plow its profits into doing things like that, I don't. If I don't have any 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 stock in that company, it's not my business, really. Um, you know, I think I have an idea of what's best for America and all that sort of thing, but that's, uh, you know, that's that's another issue. It really comes down to the shareholders. And, you know, I would also say that, you know, when the stakeholder approach comes from within a firm, you know, from the firm's management, if that internal origin is not spurred uh, by coercion that derives from, you know, the monopoly of violence, all that stuff, government, all that, uh, or by the state's appendages, like large asset managers uh, who will, I don't think they should remain nameless because I've probably mentioned them already. Vanguard, BlackRock, those firms. Yeah, we um, all know who they that are. Is a legitimate, that is a legitimate commercial function. It may be a dumb idea, maybe costly, but that's an issue for shareholders and managers to fight over. It's when those external pressures from government or large firms doing the bidding of their government partners uh, pressure companies into unwanted activism and you get those sort of corrupt economic influences, you know, that's... Um, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's when, uh, you know, in either case, you're going to hear platitudes about doing right and doing well and all that. But uh, in the former case, it's merely unwise. In the latter case, it's, uh, you know, it's essentially a, uh, a commandeering of the corporate mechanism and it should be fought. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to come back and it's always good to finish with why are, why are you optimistic about this? Why do you think this is going to get better uh, in well, I don't know what your timeline is here. <laughs> I hope it's not like a hundred years, but uh, right, right, yeah. right. So, well, I yeah, mean, so, so, the interest rate obviously has to be. A, yeah, one a big is short term, one is long term. So, yeah. I, I think again, as I said, I think the end of ESG comes. First of all, I don't think there is an end of ESG. I think there is a huge ratcheting back of ESG, uh, and I also don't think that when companies turn away from it, they're going to do it with a uh, with a raised fist and with a wave flag. I think it's going to be quiet and sort of a shrinking back rather than a bold and public pronounced. You know pronunciation uh, the pronouncement um you know dollars are maybe our dollars may be weakened after this uh quantitative easing but they're not quiet finance still matters and so i think that corporate wokeism and esg uh is only going to last until we have shareholders really feeling the damage of uh distracted managements and then it's going to go you know there's there's going to be pushback again i think it's going to be quiet but if it doesn't okay so what could wind up happening is ES, if ESG gets entrenched, and like I already said, businesses and, and you know, commerce, um, you know, uh, free markets are powerful and they can endure lots of weights attached to them and still change our lives. But if a generation or two from now, people say, hey, you know, why were my parents able to retire at 70 and I can't? You know, why did stocks for decades return 8 to 12% a year? And why is that now only 4% a year? I think that might force... Um, some people to really sort of look at what the big shift was, what the, the sort of the major change was over the last 20 years. And, and in particular, I'd say that for anyone with a particularly insightful mind, um, the question would be asked, why is the drop in annual stock market returns inversely proportional to the number of pages every year in the Federal Register? And that will be, I think, a real, uh, a real sort of agent of epiphany for many investors and for corporate uh, 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 shareholders. For, for those who are, you know, who are depending upon those returns over the long term. But I mean, I, my hope is that, um, you know, if we have a recession, even if we don't, if we have a softer hard landing, either way, interest rates at, 
you know, five to six and a half percent, unless the Fed lowers them, which they are prone to do when we have recessions. But interest rates at a higher level for a prolonged amount of time are going to force uh, a more rational allocation of of uh, corporate responsibilities and uh, and sort of force a return to uh, the business of business, even if ESG does have a sort of hangover in corporate consciousness, which it may. I think we I think we I do think we are past the high point right now. Yeah, that's that's kind of the sense that I get. Um, and yeah. I, I wonder if there's um, and this is more this might seem more like voodoo than economics. But like where like I, I wonder if there's sort of just um, general moods that that we go through where, you know, 10 years ago or, you know, when I was working in New York in the in the 2000s, let's say, you know, it was not. Eh, no, people did bring their their personal opinions into work, but there was like a limit to it. There was there was there was a definite limit to it. And um, I, I use this example like when I worked at, at a company in, in Brooklyn, Wireless Generation. We got bought by um, News Corp in 2010. Mm-hmm. M- nobody who worked there was a fan of of Rupert Murdoch, and like you know, there was a little hand wringing, but they were like, ah, that's the way it goes. You know, if that happened in 2018, I I think, uh, I think the reaction would have been over the top hysterics, you know, um, um, and so on and so forth. So, um, I was thinking about the other day, I was thinking about the open office craze where that was a big thing for a while. And then eventually, uh, I mean, it's a little bit different because there was not really external pressure, but, uh, but I was thinking about corporate, corporate fads, you know, and uh, ESG, since it's being pushed by, you know, corporate by, by large firms, which are pretty tightly knit to the government, um, it's, not, it's not really uh, it, it's, it's a lot less innocuous than uh, than corporate fads. But, you know, I was thinking about exactly that. Like, you know, there was a time when, you know, open offices were the thing. And now people say, oh, my God, I'm so glad those are gone. We hated that. Or um, or e- even the, to some extent, I believe some of the management crazes like uh Maybe not Six Sigma, but some of those were a big deal for a while. And now it turns out that, you know, um, these one size fits all sort of solutions, just like so much else uh, that uh, comes down from the government and everything else, like the minimum wage, everything else. You know, really only large firms um, in a zero interest rate environment can afford these things. And for many others, they become a distraction or, you know, eventually uh, they just sort of fade away. I think I think that might be happening. Yeah. Right. But uh, okay, so you, you, um, yeah. So, so the, yeah. So that's why I'm optimistic. I think that eventually dollars will speak louder than uh, than feels, F-E-E-L-Z. And also uh, that, um, you know, if it lasts for a long time, people will start to feel it where it counts. You know, why, 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 why did my parents have enough money? Uh, people will say, you know, to retire when they're 65 or 70. And uh, my 401k is one eighth of their, you know, of, of their uh, uh, value when they retired, you know, when I'm 60 or whatever. I think we'll feel big changes like that. There'll be many changes of a, of a less profitable, less productive um, uh, uh, corporate world. But that will be I think that will be one of them. And that's a shame because there'll be a lot of waste and ruin in the meantime. But that will still force, um, you know, sort of a, uh, a revisiting of uh, what uh, the economy and what firms used to like be like before ESG uh, took hold as a you know, corporate uh, guideline or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's a, that's a really good outline. I almost, you know, your discussion of corporate fads, it kind of makes me want to almost, uh, I feel like I could do a whole show on that, a whole episode on that. Like, like what is the, uh, yeah, what's the, yeah. what's the, what's the, the life and death of a, of a corporate fad? Because we've been through, 
uh, uh, so many of them. It's like you need something to hang on to to tell your employees this is we're we're doing agile now. It's always like we're we're moving to agile. Oh, it's like yeah. we're never right. at agile. We're always moving to agile. That was a big yeah. one back in the day. Now yeah, I remember I went to one firm. Yeah, I, that's that's the one scrum. I worked at one firm and they were like, oh, we have to do this morning stand up thing where everybody stands up and talks about what they're doing. Oh yeah. And after the first few weeks, it's like. I'm doing the same thing I was yesterday, man. I'm programming or whatever, you know. I mean, it becomes sort of a perfunctory thing, but uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I understand. You know, firms are, are are many firms are like sort of like labs, and they want to experiment with different ideas. But I mean, uh, it's one thing to try those out when it's on your dollar. It's another thing when it's being pushed by uh, by coercive entities from the outside, and it's very expensive. I, I don't think Scrum was very expensive or Agile was very expensive, right? But uh, overhauling you know, uh, your hiring. And there are some good changing, ideas in there. Changing your manufacturing processes to untested sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, green uh, measures or whatever, that can be very costly. And it's someone else's money too. You know, it's the shareholder's money. It's not uh, external uh, activist money. So we've covered this ground. Yeah. All right. So one more thing that's a little unrelated, but I, I just have to uh, uh, hook this back into my episode from like four weeks ago, which okay. is I came across your name while reading uh, Meganets for my interview with David Auerbach back in episode 282. And yeah. it was in relation to this virtual outbreak that occurred in World of Warcraft many, many years ago. You had yes. written about it. I'm sure you remember it because I saw you also wrote about it again in 2020. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> I I guess I read the chapter on it, but what? Why does this keep coming up? This is just some video game thing. <laughs> what what is it? So uh, yeah, uh, um, I, I think that piece comes up occasionally because it lays bare um, two very different aspects of using modeling or games as simulations. Um, you know, about ten years ago, actually ten years ago last month, uh, I published an article about the hyperinflation in Diablo three. And what was interesting about that episode is that um, you can get some really great economic insights from, from, from games. And those insights can be real, they can be true, and they can be non-trivial. But on the other side, I also think simultaneously, there's a dangerous yawning gap between drawing conclusions from those models and turning them into policies that affect real human beings. It's one thing, and this, by the way, goes to the whole thing about econometrics and other forms of quantifying economics. It's one thing to use a formula or an agent-based model to outline a relationship in a virtual, you know, in, in a virtual economy and, and sort of wonder how those reflect the real world. That's another entirely to treat human beings like characters in a in a first-person shooter or MMO. Uh, there's an old joke and it says, you know, why are, you know, why are biologists so much better people than economists? And the answer to the joke is that Biologists have the decency to test their models on rats first. So, uh, you know, I think I think that's why these are interesting insights, because people love thinking that their gaming um, has real world insights or has interesting uh, um, reflections of the real world. Um, but I also think there's a danger to uh, to looking at something like happened with the um, what is it called? The corrupted blood spell. Corrupted blood. It was a, yeah. What was it? A uh, uh, it was a. Was it a, a, a fake pandemic or, or something? Yeah, sort? yeah. So, I mean, it, very interesting that the, the programmers added this thing to the game. And I don't think they, I think that it was, now if I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure this is what it was, that there was an event, you know, you face a boss in a cave or something like that. And what happens is 
as you fight this boss, um, it the, the boss creates this disease which goes through your party. But what happened is the game designers didn't take into account the effect, the, the, the idea that somebody might leave the might leave the event. Yes. So some people were infected with this and they left the cave or whatever and they infected the whole world, the whole game world. And, uh, you know, of course, you can draw you, you can torture these analogies to death and look for meaning. But I thought I thought one thing that to me was interesting is that is that um, there were griefers, people who purposely sought out other people to infect. You know, we, we, we could make an analogy to that in the real world of just being careless. Right. People who, you know, oh, I'm going to go to go to the store or whatever. Yeah. To, you'll find. And then the other thing is that there were or maybe like were gonna... online trolls, you know, people who yeah, are yeah, just right. purposefully yeah, exactly. messing with yeah. people on the Internet. Right. Yeah. Um, but there were also people who said, oh, my gosh, you know, this is terrible. And they fled to the corners of the world where they could be, you know, it sort of became a, it sort of became symbolic of the whole idea of like, uh, um, oh, what was it called? Like, uh, um, you know, focused protection. Hmm. Some people said, OK, we're going to keep our small group isolated here and all that. Eventually, they just they 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 they, uh, they did a uh, what do you call it? A, a, a cold start and they just shut the game down and restarted. But I mean, there's a lot of interesting measures there. I just, my, my purpose in writing that was not only to show that there's interesting things that happen in games, just like with the uh, hyperinflation in Diablo, but also that there's, um, it's, um, it's, it, you're, you're on very dodgy territory to draw conclusions from those sorts of events and, and translate them directly to policy. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's a, that's a form of another form of malpractice, which is, uh, um, you know, it's, 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 it's alluring, but um, it's uh, the, the downsides are, are, are many. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Uh, we're coming to time. Pete, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, do you have any last thoughts about the conversation today? And where can we where can we find you and your uh, and, and your work on this? Sure. So I'm an economist at AIER. That's the American Institute for Economic Research. Our website is AIER.org. Org. And uh, I have articles there. I'm on Twitter as Peter underscore C underscore Earl, E-A-R-L-E. And um, yeah, you can find, uh, you know, uh, media stuff, uh, articles I've written, things like that at that website. We have a bunch of other great writers too. Phil Magnus, uh, Tom Hogan, a bunch of others. And we write about all this sort of thing, economics. Try to keep it for mostly for the educated layperson, but we also do academic stuff and uh you know, focus on monetary, fiscal policy, all that sort of thing. Cover a lot of area. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power.